Well, good morning. It's a privilege to uh, to uh, be here again and to preach the Word of God. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Second Kings. Second Kings, chapter six, starting at verse eight. We'll be going through verse twenty-four. Thank Pastor Scott and Pastor Kyle again for the opportunity to preach the Word. It's a heavy responsibility. One that I am not worthy of, neither is any human mouth for that matter. But uh, it's one that we're called to do is to proclaim His Word. And I, Lord, help me to be faithful to it. 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 8, and we'll be going into one verse into the next section, verse 24. Hear now the word of the Lord. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. Now some of your passage, some of your Bibles might have the word Arameans. They're, they're the same people. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him, Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. Clearly seeing 
And interpreting your world and your circumstances is critical. And we have trouble with that sometimes, don't we? I'm reading a, a book right now uh, by a pastor and a theologian by the name of Paul Henneberry. And it's, it's really captivating. He talks about how our problem is a hermeneutical problem. Meaning that hermeneutics is, is as it's been defined by, by others, it's the art and science of biblical interpretation. In other words, interpreting the Word of God. That's what hermeneutics is. And we have a problem with that. And we have a problem not only with interpreting our Bible, but interpreting our world around us. Interpreting it correctly and accurately. And in the passage of Scripture that we read today, there is quite an interpretive problem. It would help to give some background on where Israel is at this point, because sometimes our Old Testament can be a little fuzzy. This is the time of the divided monarchy, the divided kingdom. Israel has broken off from Judah. And Israel has itself another line of kings, not the line of David, as God said that there should be. And so these line of kings uh, are all in rebellion against God, all of them. There's not one in the bunch that follows God. And as the story progresses, Israel gets worse and worse. Uh, there's an there's a Old Testament scholar and Life of Christ scholar by the name of, of Doug Bookman I mention often in the Life of Christ class. If you ever have time you want to listen to, he has a, some great talks and sermon audio on the book on Elijah and Elisha, and I would commend you to them. He talks about, he points out something. I love obvious kind of observations because I miss the obvious. And so it's helpful for somebody else to point them out. He talks about how when you go through the book of Kings, you start you notice that the kings after Solomon start to kind of go rapid fire. And there's like you got a few passages, few verses on kings, and they just kind of go and they talk about how you know they didn't follow the Lord, they followed uh, how they were in sin, and then the text comes to a screeching halt at First Kings 17. And that's the passage where Elijah comes to the scene. And he stands up against one of the most ungodly kings and queens that there are. Ahab and Jezebel. And I like how, how Dr. Bookman puts it. He talks about how it's, believe it's that Jezebel's goal is to, quote, wipe out Yahweh worship from Israel. Another commenter, James Spencer, says, uh, quote, Ahab, whose wife Jezebel had slaughtered the Lord's prophets, had been actively seeking to remove the Lord's presence from Israel. End quote. So this is what's going on. And so Ahab and Jezebel, of course, are not successful. Um, Elijah confronts them. There is sparring back and forth between them. Elijah has since gone to heaven. And now you have here God's prophet Elisha. It's, it's hard to distinguish between them at times because their names sound so similar. Elijah and Elisha, Lord help me from not even mixing their names up as I preach this morning because it's easy to do. But now Elisha is on the scene. And Ahab is dead. 
And this is the descendant of, of Ahab, the king of Israel. And they are wandering further and further away from the Lord. And Israel's enemies certainly are following Yahweh. And they want to destroy Israel and do away with Israel's God if they would want to. Kind of sounds a little bit like today, doesn't it? Where people who are purported to be God's people seem to be drifting further and further away. Now, the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, He keeps. And no one will snatch them from His hand. Amen and amen. But our minds can tend to wander from time to time. and We don't accurately see what's going on. Even the man of God's servant doesn't actually accurately see what's going on. The world operates in spiritual blindness and sometimes we can operate in that as well. But we need to see, however, that Yahweh cannot and will not ever be defeated. He will prevail even at times when all the evidence appears to testify to the contrary. We just need to interpret our search situation with the spiritual sight that the Lord has given us and not with the spiritual blindness that characterizes our world. So let's dive into the text. Let's see our first point here that the text give us, gives us that God sees His enemies' plans and warns His people. Now this is verses 8 and 10. Again, God sees His enemies' plans and warns His people. Let's look at the text again. Verses 8 through 10. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. So the enemies of God's people plot to attack and defeat them. That's what's going on. In his war against Israel, Syria's king strategizes with his military advisors or his commanders to encamp in certain locations in order to ambush Israel and hopefully defeat them. That's what's going on here. Notice that the exact encampment is not named. But instead the term at such and such a place is mentioned. The narrator may be speaking generic, generically, but it seems that he does this for the reason that he uses the generic term because he plotted, serious kings plotted encamping against Israel more than one time. So he's just saving himself some time saying he would plot at this place and then he would plot at this place and he plot to go to this place. He, he tried this scheme several times. And like Sirius King, Satan repeatedly strategizes to encamp his forces and ambush us. Which is why we should always be on guard against, as Peter calls him, the prowling lion. 1 Peter 5.8 But notice that God warns of attack through his messenger speaking his prophetic word. This is verse 9. God, however, knows the thoughts and intentions of Ben-Hadad's heart as well as every word that he speaks. 
He's not a localized deity that cannot see or hear the plotting of his enemies as if they are beyond the scope of his realm. Like God would, would try to know what his enemies are plotting, but he's just out of reach. That's not our God. He is omnipresent. So all that is said or done is in his presence. He is omniscient. So every thought and intention of the heart is ever before Him. His knowledge is exhaustive. He knows all there is to know. Furthermore, He is sovereign, so that all that occurs does so because He wills it. Thus God knows every place where the Syrian army plans to be. So he reveals this information to his messenger, the prophet Elisha, who then sends word to Israel's king to avoid Syria's encampments. This so-called great king, Ben-Hadad, whose knowledge, presence, resources, and communication is limited, is no match from the omnipresent, omniscient, sovereign Yahweh. It's not even a contest. Moving on, verse 10. Listening to God's warnings through the prophet repeatedly saved Israel's king. They repeatedly saved Israel's king. So despite Israel's king's not listening to the Lord regarding worshiping and serving Him alone, I mean, he's, he's consistent in disobeying that. He's got a good track record of that, if you could even use the term good for such a thing. But here he listened to the Lord's prophet. And he saves him and Israel from Syrian attack. Despite Israel's faithlessness, God is faithful to repeatedly keep His covenant with Israel by protecting them via His repeated warnings of the enemy's encampment. So even though Israel is in in a full-out walking away from the Lord, the Lord does not abandon His people. And he repeatedly warns and saves the king and their people. So our Lord, who knows all things and sees all things, He knows the plan of His enemies against His people. He still does. Some of us, though, some of those which are of great significance for His sovereign plan, God has told us about in His Word. Amen? And He's revealed to that in the pages of Scripture. Other plans are of a more generic of a more generic nature, or a more specific nature, I guess maybe I I should say. So in other words, God doesn't reveal in Scripture every single little detailed plan that Satan has against you. All the specifics. But, there is enough in the Word of God so where the generic outline is there. So we can read in the Word of God what our enemy has planned against us so that we can be warned and take appropriate action for it. This is how the Lord speaks to us today, is in His Word. He's revealed within His pages Satan's and the world's animosity towards His people. He's warned us about that. He's warned us that His children will be persecuted, so we're not taken by surprise, and that suffering will continue until the Son returns. So the general strategies of the, uh, that our enemy will employ, God tells us about. And He does so so that we'll be sufficiently warned and take the necessary steps to guard against his schemes. 
So here we have right here, just as God warned Israel, God warns us. And if we are to be saved from the enemy's attacks, we would do well to heed the Lord's warning. So the Lord's repeated deliverance of His people, however, doesn't deter His enemies from their continued scheming against Him or His people. Instead, and here's our second point, despite seeing His power, the Lord's spiritually blind enemies continue to plot to silence His word and to destroy His people. Again, despite seeing His power, the Lord's spiritually blind enemies continue to plot to silence His word and to destroy His people. Let's go back to verses 11 through 14. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, Now my lord, O king, but Elijah, none, my lord, but O king, but Elijah, see, I did it, um, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So, God's intervention angered Syria's king and compelled him to believe that there was a traitor among them. That's verse 11. Now, the ESV renders the reaction of Syria's king as his mind being troubled. But the Legacy Standard Bible, the 95 version of the New American Standard, says, say, now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing. I think that's what's going on. Ben-Hadab is livid over the continued failure of his plots to destroy Israel. He's angry. God's enemies react much the same way today, don't they? When he continually foils their plot. They're enraged because their evil desires are not fulfilled and they are furious because their weakness is, is exposed. They are not the God and sovereign they believe themselves to be. Benhede couldn't figure out the reason why his plans were repeatedly thwarted. Now, just as a quick aside, this is a great testimony to the clarity of God's prophetic word. God clearly reveals where Ben-Hadad and the Syrian army is going to be. He communicates that to Elisha. Elisha communicates that to the king. Right? And Elisha is always correct, just as every prophet of God would be. They're all, he's always correct. Now, because of his plan's repeated failures, the Syrian king is convinced that the only explanation must be that there's a traitor in their midst. My thinking was along the lines of a spy, but Bible commentators, I think, are right to say that the king believes that there's a traitor afoot. I like what commenter Paul House says here. He says, quote, Sirius King draws the logical conclusion that he has a traitor in his court. Someone in his army must be divulging his movements. End quote. Our naturalistic world would opt for this logical conclusion, wouldn't they? It would be quite unsettling for them to consider the biblical alternative. That they are being thwarted by an infinite, holy God who has all of creation's resources and his divine power at his disposal. That's a little bit more unnerving. So of course, there must be a traitor, right? Not so. What does uh, his advisor say? Oh, no, no, no. There's a prophet in Israel. And he knows and tells what the Syrian king says in secret. 
That's the fill in the blank there. In secret. The answer, if truly and thoroughly considered, is really unsettling. Israel's prophet Elisha, who is the messenger of Israel's covenant God, Yahweh, even though Israel isn't behaving like he's their covenant God, he's the culprit. Israel's prophet knows and tells Israel's king even the words that the Syrian king speaks in the most private and intimate of places. His bedroom. Now, if the Syrian king would have been thinking clearly about this, he would have realized that a man whose knowledge reaches even the most secret places of his enemy's domain cannot be defeated. It would not matter to what corner of the earth he would travel to strategize with his military commanders. It wouldn't matter. Elijah would hear the plans and he would tell Israel's king. So a ceasing of hostilities, in other words, him giving up, would be really the only logical course of action, wouldn't it? Now if the world were thinking clearly about their situation, they would realize that their enemy is omniscient omnipresent, omnipotent, and sovereign. Any plan they hatch, any battle they fight, any war they wage has no chance of success. None. Their cause is hopeless. It may be wise, I think, at times to remind the lost of this in our evangelism. I mean, what... what Good would it do to war against a God that you cannot possibly defeat? Some food for thought. The Syrian king, though he's undeterred by the Lord's repeated thwarting of his plans, and he sends an army to capture God's prophet. This is verses 13 and 14. So his counselor's information about the culprit doesn't elicit any hesitation in Ben-Hadad, at least none that we can see. No, he's blind to the implicit warning bound up with Elisha. To attack him is to court a war with one whom you cannot hope to defeat. Instead, he wants to see, notice to see, where the prophet is so he can capture him. He wants to silence God's word. He wants to shut Yahweh up so that Israel cannot hear it and be warned. Despite the knowledge of the God whom we serve, this does not generate any hesitation in the world's mind when they see a chance to silence God's word and destroy God's people. The God that they know exists and the, the little bit they know of his power doesn't cause some of the world any hesitation. They go at him full throttle. So Elijah, they find, you see, is located in Dothan, which interestingly enough is the town where Joseph was captured and thrown into a pit by his brothers. That's Genesis 37, verse 17. So Ben-Hadad, he sends horses, chariots, and a great army under the cover of night, mind you, to surround the city so that Elisha, so he thinks, has no chance to escape. What the Syrian king will discover, however, is that he is sending his troops into a battle where they are hopelessly outnumbered and overpowered. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Perhaps you know it. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. God's enemies, knowing what can be known about God because it is plainly revealed to them, and knowing God but refusing to give thanks to Him, that's Romans 1, 19-21, they become futile in their thinking and continue to wage a war against the God who will ultimately be their judge. In their darkened minds, they will believe that somehow they can cast off God's sovereignty and His reign over their lives. I recall a long time ago seeing on the internet, and that's a dangerous thing when you say when you see something on the internet. I saw something. It was a sign, a, a sign, or something. It was a, a something. It was a paraphrase, and it said something like this. And, and forgive me for saying this, but it said if Jesus comes back, kill him again. This is what man in his or her most depraved state desires to be rid of God's voice through His Word and through God's people. If they cannot kill God, they will attempt to do the very next best thing and kill us. Despite their hostility, in the face of of what God has clearly said They continue their hostility. But despite that, however, that doesn't affect what we should do. In this sense, that we must continue to bring the light of the knowledge through the face of Jesus Christ. We must continue to bring the gospel to His enemies as the good news is the only hope that they have to cure them of their blindness. So they may savingly See Him and live. We must also remember the immeasurable greatness and power of our God who is infinitely greater and more powerful than our enemy. And we must live accordingly. Despite the nations raging, despite their anger, despite their hostility, we must remember how great our God is and not lose heart and not lose hope. And sometimes we need to look at passages like this and remember how powerful our God is and worship Him. Amen. And that's our third point. We must see the Lord of hosts outnumber and capture His enemies. This is verses 15-19. through 19. Let's look at it again. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. 
So we see that the prophet's servant sees and fears the Syrian army. That's verse 15. So when Elisha sees and fears the Syrian army. So when Elisha's servant awakes the next morning and he goes out of his dwelling and he looks around the city, he sees an army with horses and chariots surrounding the town. A surely intimidating turn of events and an intimidating sight. Now this servant, it pointed out, may or may not be Gehazi. Elisha's servant who was cursed with Naaman's leprosy back in chapter 5 because he schemed to get money and clothing from Naaman. You could read that in, in chapter 5 on your own time. If it is Gehazi, we don't know if it is, but if it is, his reaction is consistent with his character. As he can only see the immediate realities in front of him and not the spiritual realities that he could see through the eye of faith. Elisha's servant sees the Syrian army in front of him and his natural reaction is fear. He does not know what to do, so he appeals to Elisha for help. Now at time God's people see the world's rage and armies rise up against them to capture and destroy them, and not seeing with the eye of faith, they instead only look at the immediate reality in front of them. And it's in these times that we must call out to our Lord for wisdom, direction, and help. And so that we may see the spiritual reality of what's really going on. We react in fear sometimes too. This is, this is something that we can identify with. But Elisha, however, sees that the Lord's army outnumbers the enemies. And through God's provision, Elijah's servant sees as well. This is verses 16 and 17. Elisha sees matters clearly. He knows the reality of the unseen spiritual world. He knows that those who serve Yahweh always have an army which greatly outnumbers the army of God's enemies. Always. No matter how dire the circumstances, no matter how hopeless the situation, no matter how badly it may seem that we as God's people are outnumbered, we must remember that what our Lord has told us, there are always more with those who fear the Lord of hosts than there are those with his enemies. Always. Elisha intercedes for his servant to the Lord and pleads with him, pleads with the Lord to open his servant's eyes so that he may be comforted by the vast reality of the Lord's armies. He wants him to see it. And in God's grace, the Lord answers Elisha's prayer. And so Elisha's servant sees the spiritual realm. And he sees the Lord's pure, powerful, and terrifying army fill the mountain all around Elisha. Then Hadad's army may surround Dothan, but Yahweh's army surrounds Elisha. May we have the spiritual light to see what our Lord says about His vast power in His armies, which He dispenses to protect His people and believe what we see in the Scriptures. Again, I've, I mentioned this uh, in Sunday school. I'm more and more convinced that unbelief is the big sin. It is the sin. And all the other sins spin off of that sin. Will we believe the Lord or won't we? I pray that the Lord would give us spiritual eyes to see so that we would actually see what He said and believe Him and live accordingly. And God blinds the Syrian army so that they cannot see their entrapment. 
He blinds the Syrian army so they cannot see their entrapment in the verses 18 and 19. When the Syrian army attacks, Elisha defeats them not with horses or with soldiers or with chariots, but with prayer. He attacks the resource they first use to discover his whereabouts, their eyes. The Syrians were spiritually blind to disregard God's power and his warnings and attack his messenger, so Elisha judges them by requesting that the Lord manifest physically what they are spiritually, blind. The Lord honors his prophet's prayer and demonstrates his sovereign protection by answering Elisha's request. Elisha then, the scene's almost comical, isn't it? Elisha, in the commentators debate whether it's 10 or 12 miles, but he leads this powerful army that's blind pretty much by the hand, 10 or 12 miles away, to a trap. Many times the solution we need for our discouragement and disillusionment is to look again to God's Word, to be reminded of His immeasurable power and conquest over His enemies in the past, and the power and conquest He will surely display in the future. This comforted people like Moses, like Joshua, like Samuel, like David, like Elijah, and surely here Elisha. And it's meant to encourage us as well. Make no mistake, one day, those who continue to rebel against their God and continue to make war against the saints, God will entrap them one day and leave them with no escape. That's the future that they have if they don't reply to God's mercy. Throughout biblical history, the Lord has demonstrated His power and yet withheld His judgment in order to demonstrate this mercy. Time wouldn't allow us to list all the instances where God does this, but this is certainly one of them. Why does God do this? This is our fourth point. Seeing God's mercy should motivate His enemies and His people to abandon their rebellion. Again, seeing God's mercy should motivate His enemies and His people to abandon their rebellion. This is in verses uh, 22 through 24, and and actually it's throughout the rest of the book, uh, at least through uh, chapter 17, which we'll talk about in a moment. Let's read it. 20 through 24. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. But then the text goes on, and it says this. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. God causes the Syrian army to see what they have been, that they've been captured and that they're at His mercy. He causes them to see that they've been captured and they're at His mercy. This is verses 20 and 21. Seeing God's mercy... So, this is what He shows them. That 
they're not the ones in charge. He's in charge. That they have not outnumbered Elisha. Elisha has outnumbered them. Notice there that they are in a trap. They, they, can you imagine the scene? God opens their eyes and they're about 10 to 12 miles away where they were originally. And not only is Elisha there, who they were looking for, and Elisha was surely was there and true to his word, as is pointed out, but Israel's army has surrounded them. And they are the ones who have been captured, not Elisha. Yet seeing God's mercy, yet still spiritually blind, the Syrian army goes home and returns later with greater force. This is verses 22 through 24. So seeing God's mercy, but yet they're still spiritually blind, the Syrian army goes home and returns later with greater force. So Elisha displays God's abundant mercy to his enemies. Do you see it? Instead of slaying them, God instructs Israel's king through Elisha to sustain their life and renew their strength by providing them bread and water. God reveals His mercy to those who will submit to Him. Israel's king prepares a great feast for the Syrian army and is in no doubt serves as a preview of what lavish provision that could be theirs if they would simply cease their war against Israel, God's chosen people, and God Himself. Do you see it? He says to serve them, bread, don't kill them. Would you, would you kill those who captured? No, no, no. Give them bread and water and send them home. But Israel's king puts on a great feast. These, this army deserves to die. This is war. They did, they, you know, it's pointed out that one commentator points out how this is what you do in war, that you kill your captors. But that's not what God does. God shows His enemies mercy. And not only is it bread and water, it's a what? It's a great feast. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And look, the Syrian army is not shortchanged. They're allowed to eat and drink, probably to their fill, and they're sent home, full and satisfied to their Syrian king. Like this, It's like God showing... This is what you could have if you would simply stop warring against me. I would provide for your every need. I would shower mercy and grace and love upon you if you would simply stop. This is a tangible expression of God's mercy and kindness to his enemies. What is the message God is communicating? The second half of Romans 2, verse 4. Knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. At first, it may seem like the Syrian army truly sees God's message. Because verse 23 says, and you could look at it, the Syrians did not come again on raids to the land of Israel. However, verse 24 really puts that notion to rest though. As it declares that afterwards, Ben-Hadad, what's he do? He musters his entire army and he besieges Samaria. Old Testament scholar Eugene Merrill helpfully interprets verse 23 like this. Quote, Never again did the Arameans send small companies of troops against Israel. And then he points to Ben-Hadad's actions in verse 24 as proof. So the idea is this. Ben-Hadad sees God's power, just like he did before, except even greater, right? Because he entrapped his little army. So what's Ben-Hadad do? He's still spiritually blind. Do you see it? 
He doesn't correctly interpret God's mercy. And so what he does instead, he increases his hostilities. He doesn't repent. He continues, and ultimately it's going to destroy the Syrian army or cause them to run, and it's ultimately going to destroy Ben-Hadad, which is what all rebellion ultimately leads to anyway. Ben-Hadad is much like his spiritual father who likely empowers his evil deeds. He's much like Satan in that way. Satan saw God's indescribable glory, his incredible generosity, and his love, and instead of continuing in a life of praise and service, he rebelled. And he increased his hostilities, and he will ultimately be destroyed forever. Those who are lost are a lot like Ben-Hadad and Satan. They see God's indescribable glory, His incredible generosity, and His great love, and instead of turning from their sin against God, they instead, as Romans 2.4 says, they presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience. And as Romans 2.5 says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Some of God's enemies, however, don't remain in their spiritual blindness. Praise be to God. Chapter 5 gives us one example. Naaman. Right? There are those in this room who are examples of this. God has given us eyes to see and a heart to follow Him. Therefore, we should not give up hope. We should believe that God's mercy will fall on blind, even though God's mercy will fall on blind eyes, there will be some to whom He gives spiritual sight. And that's through the Gospel. And then finally, Israel also does not truly see God's mercy to them. And in their blindness, and their blindness leads them away from God and from their land. And that's actually from verse 24 to 2 Kings 17. Commenters Richard Patterson and Herman Ostell comment in verse 24 this, quote, Perhaps the miraculously arranged temporary lull had been divinely designed to teach Israel God's abiding love and concern for His people. But with no evidence of repentance by Israel, God withdrew His protective hand and Israel faced a full-scale Syrian invasion, end quote. God's mercy is always designed to show His glory and His love. And it's designed to lead His wayward children to repentance. Israel, like Syria, is blind. And they continue in their rebellion until they are cast out of the land, as God said He would do if they did not obey. This was in the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. And the Bible and Bible teachers have pointed out that God is faithful to the Mosaic Covenant by holding Israel to it, so that if they continue their disobedience, they're out. And he does so by visiting the punishment of their exile. But what's different about our circumstances, church, is that we're united to Christ by faith. And we are under the new covenant. As such, we have no threat of exile if we fail to obey our Lord and Master. A glory of the gospel is that Christ paid the punishment for our sin in full so that there is no punishment for us to pay. And he completely obeyed in our behalf so that He meets the Father's righteous requirement of perfection needed in order to live in His presence and be joined to Christ. 
There is nothing in and of ourselves we do to inherit eternal life. I want you to hear that. Nothing. The gifts of repentance and faith God gives and those who are born again exercise those gifts. So, there is no punishment left for us. None. I want you to hear that. However, all that being said, we are subject to our Father's discipline when we stray. This is a sign of His mercy. And as children, if we respond to this mercy, in response to this mercy, imperfectly, but nevertheless, truly. I want you to hear that. We respond imperfectly, but we truly respond. It's not fake. It's real. When we do that throughout this life, when we turn from rebellion, we're transformed more and more into the image of the Beloved Son. So let's not spurn God's mercy. But instead, brothers and sisters, let it drive us into His loving arms where we will find forgiveness and restoration. So what have we seen? We've seen that God sees His enemies' plans and warns His people. The text has shown us that despite seeing His power, the Lord's spiritually blind enemies continue to plot to silence His word and to destroy His people. The Lord has shown us that He, the Lord of hosts, outnumbers and captures His enemies, and we should find comfort in that. And finally, we have seen that God's mercy should motivate His enemies and His people to abandon their rebellion. While we live in expectation of our Lord's return, let us look to our world and to our circumstances, not in spiritual blindness, like those who have no light, but instead with the spiritual sight that our Lord gives. He sees all the scheming of the wicked, and He warns us. And despite the nations raging against our Lord, His Word and His people, He outnumbers our enemies. And He will ultimately defeat them. So in light of this, let us see His mercy and let us turn to Him and plead for others to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You very much for Your Word. I pray, Father, that You would now take it and apply it deep to our hearts. Let us take comfort of the protection You provide and in Your great might and power. But let us also tremble for your enemies are hopelessly outnumbered. And there is no hope unless they lay down the rebellion. Let us plead with them to lay it down. And Spirit, speak to our hearts and continue to put down the rebellion that even still, even though we are new creatures in Christ, it still remains. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.